3: I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Cantania with
2: John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Tech stocks crushed to kick off the week. NASDAQ's down 2% today coming off a pretty rough stretch last week as well. Got this muddled market message and sentiment weighing on investors post-earnings ahead of Jackson Hole. We'll watch that, guys. It's good to be back together. Uh, but, Dee, we do have the VIX at a three-week high, and this bond sell-off has the 10-year yield at about a one-month high.
4: Yeah, I mean, over the last six to eight weeks, um, separate from last week, we've seen this rally, especially in some of those high growth names. And this debate has raged. Is this a bear market rally or is this really the start of a bull market with the Nasdaq at session lows? John, it feels like with earnings season out of the way, investors are now focused on the macro, on Jackson Hole, on some of those risk factors. So we did see that winning streak sort of muddled last week.
3: Yeah. I mean, I was last here about 12 days ago. I'm looking at the major indices. What's changed? Nothing. I mean, everything's about the same place. I know a lot's changed uh, under the covers there. But, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like macro is a big part of what investors have to sift through here because we've been hearing for weeks and weeks, Here's what a bear market bounce would look like. And here are the fundamentals to pay attention to. And, okay, we've had all these supply worries. Now, what's going to happen to demand when those interest rate hikes come through the end of the year and into next year? It's unclear to me exactly how much has changed since then. Aside from people's feelings about what might change, what fundamentally has changed? I think that's what investors, Carl... All
4: these all yep. these little data points, right, John? I would point to Cisco earnings because I remember last quarter, they're the so-called off-market earnings, huh. right? They report a little bit later in the season. And if folks were worried about demand, that being the next shoot to drop, it's actually a pretty good picture, Carl. We heard from Chuck Robbins um, the day after earnings. And he said there was actually surprising strength in Europe and no slowdown in demand as far as he could see yet. But, you know, we'll see. We've got Zoom, Palo Alto. We've got a few other important off-market uh, earnings to get through.
2: Yeah, uh, people on Friday were taking stock of the the best looking quarter prints of the week. Last week, John and Cisco and AMAT were included among them. And even though we're sort of in this period with not a lot of corporate commentary, we're going to get into it. We're going to get uh, NVIDIA and uh, and CRM and Palo Alto and Snow and Zoom, as D says. So maybe some of that corporate commentary going into September and in conference season gets some outsized
3: attention. Yeah, and into it. Uh, important read on the health of small and medium business in particular. And really underneath all of this is the consumer and how tapped out is the consumer going to be? Or, you know, does the consumer get a second or third or fourth wind heading into (laughs) Q4? The Overall enterprise spending, especially on digital transformation, had been okay, right? The question is, how much does all of that hold up Uh, As things continue, conditions continue to tighten.
4: Speaking of consumer spending, um, Carl, I know you were looking at this earlier, too, but the back to school spending per household actually larger than previous years. According to Bank of America, you guys actually missed all of the meme craziness last week. Um, Well, it's still going on, (laughs) so maybe you didn't miss it. Um, But. Some of the bears point to that as saying that the rally that we have seen has been, Carl, low quality. So perhaps not surprising that it doesn't have legs.
2: Yeah, it's one thing to say back-to-school spending is stronger than the last couple of years, but we all know why that's true, John. And that's <laughs> yeah. because uh, Everything costs in, more. in nominal terms, things cost more. By the way, uh, we did get a lot of retail blowing through here last week when you and I were out, but this week we're going to get Ulta and Dollar Tree and Dick's and Cody and Macy's and and Burling, uh, Burlington Co-Factory, so uh, there'll be a little more commentary on the consumer before the week's out.
4: Yeah. Our next guest, though, is predicting a double dip recession ahead, saying we could return to positive GDP growth in Q3 or Q4, but then fall back into a recession next year. Joining us now, Kraft Ventures co-founder David Sachs and early investor names like Facebook, Uber, Affirm and more. David, happy Monday. Thanks for joining us at the start of the week. Um, where Thank does that leave you. us? We've, we've been having this discussion. Have markets got ahead of themselves? Where are you on whether this is a bear market rally or the start of something more?
5: Well, I think the, the market uh, evidently did get a little bit ahead of itself. It seemed to make a lot a big deal out of uh, you know the Fed Chair uh, Powell's statements about how rates were close to neutral. And you know the problem with that is just the Fed said a lot of things over the last couple of years that turned out not to be right. And I think ultimately the market will be driven by data, not by. And then ultimately the, the Fed's actions will be driven by data, not what the Fed says today about what it's going to do at some point in the future. So I I tend to, you know, obviously I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Macro investing is not exactly what I do, but um, but yeah, I I do tend to be um, pretty skeptical that all the turbulence is behind us, and um, and so I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it. But I but I do, uh, but I would I would basically expect um, a, a double dip is sort of what is probably what I would expect to, to happen from here.
3: But maybe you'll bet a little money on it. And um, a, a little money for you is a lot of money for a lot of other people. So talk about what your expectations are and what sorts of investments you do make during this period. I mean, I don't know if it's that much different if you're investing at the early stage in technologies and trends that, uh, trends that you expect to persist. But uh, what, what's your focus right now?
5: Well, the, the reason why I said, this is, I think, last week on our podcast, Y'all in Pod, that I thought we were headed for a double dip is because, first of all, you have to realize that we are in a technical recession now based on the definition being two quarters of uh, negative GDP growth. That was caused by inflation, as we all know. You had a 7. point something percent nominal growth rate. You had a 9 percent inflation rate. So, you subtract those two things and you get to a negative uh, real GDP growth rate. I think it's possible that based on inflation coming down a little bit, that you could see us bounce to positive in Q3 or Q4. But the reason why I think it could be a double dip is because all these interest rate increases that the Fed has now done this year, I guess we've had four rate increases, and it's been, you know, including 275-point rate increases being the last two, those really haven't worked their way through the economy yet. Um, They've worked their way through the markets, but it takes six to nine months for those types of rate increases to really work their way through the real economy. So I would yeah. expect that by by next year, you would start to see a real impact on economic activity. And so you already see it now. If you look at what the builders are telling us with new home starts, uh, inventories piling up, that industry tends to be impacted very quickly yeah. by rate increases. So this is why I, you know, again, wouldn't necessarily put a lot of money on it, but I but I do think that a double dip is, is, is probably the, the case I would
6: bet on.
4: Right. It's interesting, though, because markets, at least separate of the past week, have been thinking that maybe the worst of interest rates um, are over, maybe getting turned on its head a little bit uh, over the last week. But, David, while we have you, I want to get to Amazon mm-hmm. um, and this latest report, I guess, let's call it making another push into healthcare. according to the journal, bidding alongside CVS and United Health uh, for home health services company Signify Health. Take a look at that stock. It is surging today on that report, up some 35 percent. Um, you know it's interesting because Amazon tried to push into healthcare organically. Remember that JV with Berkshire and JPM. Now it's sort of buying its way into the space. Do you think Amazon's going to be successful taking that route?
5: Well, I think it's interesting that they're trying. I guess before this, they they acquired or trying to acquire One Medical. Um, I think it's it's great to see a company like Amazon trying to get into the space. Um, I think they'll uh, bring a lot of consumer-led thinking. To the healthcare space, which is you know what what's needed there, so I'm happy that they're they're pursuing this. Um, you know, it's interesting that they're willing to pursue this in light of the hostile uh, sort of antitrust regime that we have in Washington. You're seeing increased scrutiny by the competition authorities on virtually every deal, and I think it's starting to have a chilling effect on M&A. So I'm happy to see that Amazon is bucking that trend.
2: Hey, David, I wonder how you're thinking about employment. We're getting some uh, items crossing the tape right now about Ford eliminating some positions in the U.S., about a couple thousand salaried personnel. uh, Interesting uh, in the auto business. But I wonder, uh, through the lens of tech, and we've heard so much about cautionary memos and hunkering down, but is that going to be an even sharper relief, you think, later this year?
5: Well, you know, we're seeing a pretty rapid slowdown in the economy. I mean, in my quarter of the economy, which is startups, we've already reacted really strongly. I think startups tend to be the canary in the coal mine. They're very sensitive to changes in the larger economy, especially changes in the capital raising environment. So, Startups saw earlier this year that growth valuations took a huge hit. It, it started getting much harder to raise money at the lofty valuations we saw last year. So, startups started to go into cash conservation mode. They started slowing their hiring plans. I think big companies are now doing the same thing. So, I think this is just more data points around uh, the economy as a whole slowing down as a result of these rate increases. Like I said, I think this is just starting to wash through the real economy. I don't want to, you know, sort of overly make it into a catastrophe or something like that. I don't want to catastrophize this. I don't necessarily think we're headed for a severe recession, but it does seem that, um, that these slowdowns are starting to impact a lot of different uh, corners of the economy.
3: Well, what about buying behavior? How is it impacting that, right? Because, yes, a lot of startups have moved into cash conservation mode, but we're just talking about how business spending on technology um, hasn't necessarily slowed down that much. So, do you risk choking off uh, promising startups by not giving them cash? if customers are still buying?
5: Well, so we're starting to see a little bit of a slowdown, actually, as companies sharpen their pencils and, uh, you know, deal cycles for large deals take longer. There's more price pressure on those deals. We're actually starting to see a little bit of a change in behavior on the part of, of buyers. We invested in a lot of uh, software companies, a lot of software as a service companies, and we're starting to see this slowdown percolate through procurement and buying activity. Now that doesn't mean that software as a service is going away. Software is going to continue to become a larger and larger part of the cost structure of businesses. It's only going to be a larger and larger part of the economy. So, We have a huge you know, secular tailwind behind software that's going to continue whether we're in a bull market or a recession. But I would just tell you that I am starting to see a little bit of this sort of pencil sharpening behavior on the part of buyers.
4: David, we're going to be talking to the CFPB director in a few minutes, and he is already looking into big tech's access to consumer data and how they use it. And you talked a little bit about M&A as a good thing, but I wonder also as a startup investor, um, is big tech able to gain an even bigger advantage if M&A sort of continues as, or continues as is, I suppose, or speeds up?
5: Well, you know we we're we're investing in the riskiest companies in the economy i mean when a vc writes a check most of the time you expect that 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 investment to go to zero and there are just very few good outcomes i mean you one set of outcomes is when a company can ipo and go public and the other set of good outcomes is when they can get acquired and if you take M&A off the table it gets much harder for a venture fund to deliver good returns. And then that suppresses the amount of risk capital that's available in the economy. So we need these MA outcomes. And the problem I see right now is that the administration, the regime in Washington is creating tremendous uncertainty about what kinds of deals can get through. Now, I think there are legitimate reasons to be regulating these huge tech monopolies much more closely than they are. I think that they should be making sure that these powerful tech monopolies do not preference, and privilege their own apps mm-hmm. on their own platforms in a way that, again, is advantageous relative to the way they treat startups. So I think there is a role for that. But right now, it feels to me like the administration is creating almost a blanket chilling effect mm-hmm. on M&A, and I think that's very bad for the
3: ecosystem.
4: Well, you're still seeing, though, some deals at least try to get through. David, thanks for being with mm-hmm. us. We'll talk to you again soon. David Sachs, Kraft Thank you. Ventures.
3: Thank you. Sounds like he's not worried about uh, Facebook getting a metaverse monopoly. (laughs) Meanwhile, user data in focus as the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau comes after big tech companies. We will discuss with the head regulator there. Next, Tech Check is just getting started.
7: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort.
4: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Check out shares of DocuSign. They're down nearly four and a half percent. RBC taking the name down to neutral, cutting their price target to sixty five dollars a share in concerns about execution issues, employee turnover and the company losing credibility with investors. They think it will still take several quarters for the company to accelerate growth once they hire replacement for former CEO Dan Springer. You might remember he resigned unexpectedly back in June. Shares are 80 percent off of their highs of the year. A long way to go from here, John, though I would note they're up 10% this quarter, which we know has largely been good for those former high-growth darlings.
3: Indeed, indeed. Uh, Meanwhile, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau warning that digital marketing platforms must comply with federal consumer finance protections. That includes big tech names like Facebook and Google. It could be held liable for violations. We've seen a recent growth of celebrity crypto ads, which might have something to do with it. Joining us now, CFPB Director Rohit Chopra, uh, Director, welcome. Help me understand what you're in fact saying here. Is it that if you're in digital marketing and you're targeting marketing messages yeah. about financial yeah. products to specific people or groups, if there's something misleading about them? Nothing. Um, uh, okay, hold on. Let's let's get the director's audio uh, linked up correctly. Dee, um, you mentioned that there've been a number of celebrities with crypto ads. And there have been a lot of questions lately about whether these crypto companies are representing themselves in the correct way, especially when it comes to things like FDIC insurance. They've thrown FDIC around a bit, which leads some to believe that these things behave like bank accounts. And lately we have seen they do not.
4: Yeah, FTX was one singled out. I know we're going to have Kate Verney on the show later on some of their past results um, and how much they have spent on marketing, right? At a time when consumers, John, were trying to figure out the entire space. What does FDIC insured mean for a crypto account? Um, And so I'm looking forward to hearing from Mr. Chopra how they're thinking about it. Um, There's clearly just so much misunderstanding about the space and marketing played into it. You still see it out there.
3: Yeah. And Carl, um, while we're waiting for uh, the director to be ready, I mean, it's not just crypto, of course. We've seen a lot of retail activity in the markets lately, Um, you know, so many different types of financial products that are out there as fintech firms target consumers. You wonder to what degree uh, he's getting involved in that as well.
2: Yeah, uh, D made a great point just about the marketing uh, to, to the retail consumer. Bloomberg had some data out last week, guys. Spending on crypto television ads in the month of February, which, of course, remember, was Super Bowl month, was like $84 million. And in July, that fell to $36,000, D. So they really went through this wave of hyper-marketing, and we're going to see. We're probably still uh, trying to gauge the effects of all remember that exposure. Remember
4: the Super Bowl <laughs> ad after yeah. crypto ad?
3: Yes, indeed. Uh, And they keep going. Well, we are uh, getting the director's audio figured out, and let's pay some bills while we do that. Tech Check will be right back on the other side of this break.
7: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially, step up like a boss and save the day, or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you if you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic, because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Joining
3: us now, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Director Rohit Chopra. Uh, Rohit, uh, I hope you can hear me at this point, director. I can, yes I can. Fantastic, now I want to start off with um, The the statement you recently made, the CFPB recently made about digital marketing, can you explain what the significance of this is? Is it that if uh, firms, digital marketing firms are targeting messages about financial products, they're
6: responsible if those messages are misleading? Well, here's the thing. We have a lot of large tech firms who are increasingly getting into financial services, whether it's payments, whether it's lending. And we want to make it clear that they can't simply hide behind an advertiser exemption. Those firms are doing a lot more in many cases than advertising. They are designing, in some cases, the products. They are offering those services. They are trying to, in some ways, take control of the insights into our digital wallets. And they should be following the same set of rules that banks and other financial companies are following.
3: But practically, what does that mean? Like, in in what cases might this be a concern? Does it have to do with some of these crypto products where people might not understand uh, the the risk to them losing all their money, not being able to get it out? If that's advertised to them, are you saying that the large platforms that deliver that message are somewhat responsible?
6: Well, it's a little different. It's really when those tech firms are really part of designing those messages or they're targeting specific types of consumers. We saw this actually at the Department of Housing and Urban Development too, where they charged Facebook with violating anti-discrimination laws because they were of how they were allowing exclusion of certain uh, prospective homeowners. So look, it comes down to this. If the tech firm is really just a passive pipe Um, to allow advertising to flow through. That's different than when they are directly involved in targeting or directly involved in shaping the content uh, that is related to financial services. And look, this is part of a broader effort of tech getting into finance, and that offers a lot of opportunities. But also, we just want to make sure that everyone's playing by the same set of rules.
4: Right. And I think you said in the past, Director Chopra, that that could undermine competition. At the same time, though, um, if the key here is judging credit worthiness in a space like buy now, pay later, wouldn't a big tech company, its access to greater amounts of data be a safer thing for the consumer to whom it's granting loans because it would have a better view of their riskiness?
6: Well, it's actually all sorts of firms that are using more data to underwrite loans with the hope that they can price risk better. And of course, pricing risk better is better for the system. At the same time, we want to make sure that they're also disclosing the reasons why people are being denied or the reasons Mm -hmm. why they're getting an adverse decision. And they can't hide behind the fact that they don't understand their algorithm. So we've also tried to make it clear that you have to follow the same set of rules when it comes to offering credit, just as banks and other firms do.
4: And really broad question on the back of this then. What do you think is better for consumers, credit cards or a buy now, pay later product? What would you tell your kids or a younger generation to use?
6: Well, honestly, it really depends on the person. There's no question that buy now, pay later is fitting a market need. It is exploding in growth. Um, It's not just a Gen Z consumer using it. People now of all ages are using it. And here's what we're going to be uh, doing soon. In the next few weeks, we're going to be releasing the results of our study. We compel data from all of the big Buy Now, Pay Later companies, and we're going to talk about how are they using data. We're going to be talking about how they engage in credit reporting, what happens when consumers return goods. Right now, I think the experience is not the same between a credit card and a Buy Now, Pay Later firm. Um, and we want to see all of the benefits of different types of products, but also want to make sure we understand how it's affecting consumers. You know, on top of that, I've got auto lenders and mortgage lenders asking, how am I supposed to write a mortgage or an auto loan if I don't know how much buy now, pay later loans someone has? So yeah. we have to look at the whole thing in its totality.
3: Depline. Depline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Good luck with that. It certainly is important to do. Rohit Chopra, director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Thank you.
4: Meanwhile, CNBC getting a rare peek under the hood at crypto exchange FTX revenue growing a thousand percent. Yes, you heard that right. One thousand last year while cryptocurrencies were at their highs. Remains to be seen how hard they've been hit by the sell off. But Kate Rooney, you broke that story. Um, Some eye-poppingly
8: large numbers here. Yes, the growth was really eye-popping. And like you said, this is 2021 audited financials, so we don't have a sense of Q2, but last year really, uh, really was eye-popping. The privately held crypto exchange brought in just over a billion dollars in revenue for 2021. Like you said, up a 1,000% in a year as of the first quarter. It was still on pace for a similar run rate for 2022. It was also profitable, operating income of $272 million with 27% margins. And guys, like the other exchanges, it is all about trading fees and derivatives were by far the biggest revenue driver. With most of the action happening abroad, less than 5% of revenue came from its U.S. subsidiary. FTX has really made a big push for that U.S. retail audience through marketing. You guys mentioned some of those Super Bowl ads. And according to the documents, it's spent about 15% of revenue on marketing and ads, and it pl- uh, plans to spend almost a billion Over the next few years. We'll see if that changes. But the documents also give a sense of Sam Bankman-Fried's growing global reach. FTX now owns companies in Cyprus, and Turkey. It also acquired companies in Switzerland and Australia recently, which may have also been to get certain regulatory licenses. Unclear, though, as we just talked about, Dee, how the company's holding up in the recent downturn. If you look at shares of Coinbase, that's really the only public comparison out there, down 70 percent year to date. But speaking of Coinbase, don't miss our exclusive interview with Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase. We'll have a lot more on that tomorrow. D. Uh, yeah, uh, John. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm just.
3: I'm curious. <laughs> 2021 was such a big year for so many things. Crypto. Uh, it, it's one thing to look back at, at how much things boomed during that time, but given the uh, derivatives uh, income stream, given that so much of it was outside of the U.S. How much of that category of stuff has run into real turbulence in 22?
8: So if you look at trading volumes, a lot of which are public, uh, it's probably down about 30%. So Coinbase has seen the same thing. All of the exchanges are suffering on the retail side. Institutional trading, things like derivatives, options tend to hold up better in bear markets. Those groups tend to be more active. So FTX, in this case, may be a bit more insulated. And the other thing to watch, which we don't know at this point, have they gained market share? So would that offset any of the weakness they're seeing in trading volume if they're able to grow that 5% number based on all the advertising they've done and the huge push? There's a sign right out the window here where (laughs) D and I are with an FTX ad with Giselle on it. So they've really just made this enormous push in the U.S. We'll see if that pays there's off. All, there's also
4: one with Sam bankman frieds face on it. Actually, <laughs> all they're, they're all over the city. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so the chenos argument against Coinbase, right, is that fees are going to zero. FTX has played a part of this. Yeah. How do they charge for derivatives then? Does that money stay there so versus just
8: a simple trading? It's way more lucrative for all the exchanges, yeah. e- even on the retail trading side for stocks. So options, derivatives just tend to be way more lucrative for any of these exchanges versus the retail spot trading. Although FTX does charge a lower fee than Coinbase. So Coinbase is around 200 basis points, 2%. 2%. FTX is about two basis points. So the thought there is that as more competition enters, Binance is sort of the same price range, that uh, Coinbase may have to lower fees, and that is the Chainos bear case for Coinbase. But Coinbase has built itself in the U.S., tried to really be the compliant American company and say, guys, we're going public here. They are global, but not nearly as global as some of these other names. And doing it in public will be fascinating to hear from Armstrong, who typically doesn't talk to mainstream media. That's right, it's been a while.
3: (laughs) All right, Kate, thank you. Time now for a news update. Let's get it from Bertha Coombe.
7: John, here's what's happening at this hour. Autumn maker Ford cutting about 3,000 jobs, primarily in the US and Canada. The cuts come from the ranks of white collar and contract employees. Ford has been trying to slash expenses as it plans out a long-term transition to electric vehicles. The company began notifying those workers of the cuts this morning. A new dose of skepticism this morning about the Fed's ability to successfully combat inflation. In a survey by the National Association for Business Economics, about 75 percent of respondents doubt that the Fed can bring inflation down to 2 percent without causing a recession. Only 13% are either confident or very confident of a soft landing. And Wendy's has removed lettuce from sandwiches in three states as officials try to pinpoint the source of an E. coli outbreak. The move came after customers in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan complained of illness. CDC is investigating whether romaine lettuce is indeed the source of that outbreak. Stay tuned. John?
3: Bertha, thank you. Meanwhile, tech stocks underperforming this morning with the NASDAQ down 2%. Let's check on what's driving the action. Christina Parts-Nevelis joins us with the breakdown. Christina.
0: Hi, John. Well, concerns from what is going to come out of Jay Powell's Jackson Hole speech later on this week and what that means for the global rate cycle, definitely weighing on markets. you got the Treasury sell-off causing bond yields to spike, and that's putting pressure on rate-sensitive growth stocks, driving the Nasdaq, like you said, down 2%. The biggest drags on the Nasdaq 100, Netflix on a downgrade. CFRA analysts think Netflix will underperform after surging about 40% from its mid-July lows. And then you got software names like uh, Atlassian, DocuSign, Workday, Cooper all names that are sensitive to a high-rate environment, but also getting hit by downgrades. And then you've got Chinese e-commerce names like Pinduoduo, JD.com. They're actually rallying Pinduoduo, for example, up over almost 5% after China's central bank cut interest rates for a second consecutive consecutive week. And then, of course, I got to mention some meme movement. AMC down about, what, 39% right now after it issued new preferred equity called APE. It's similar to a stock split, so we're seeing APE shares come in just around $7.25. If you add APE plus AMC, it's still a little bit higher than the value of uh, AMC shares on Friday's close, which was about 18 bucks. And although not on the NASDAQ, I'll end with this. Salesforce earnings are on Wednesday and will will be seen as a major bellwether for the tech sector and considering its off-quarter earnings, it might give us some insight to any hints of enterprise spend weakness. Carl?
2: That is a huge key uh, for a lot of those names this week, Christina. Thank you. Uh, Let's take a deeper dive this morning into the state of venture capital. Our next guest sees some rough waters ahead for the innovation economy, bracing for higher failure rates, cost-cutting, tighter access to liquidity, at least for the next few quarters. Joining us this morning is Silicon Valley Bank CEO Greg Becker. Greg, welcome. It's great to have you.
1: Yeah. Good morning, Carl. Great to see you.
2: We spent uh, part of the last half hour talking about a lot of the cost saving efforts that uh, smaller firms have been undergoing uh, in the wake of all of this uncertainty. But I wonder, are we entering a period where innovation getting funded is going to be a much tougher slog?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, you, you know, to contrast what 22 is like compared to 21, right? 21, the companies were in the driver's seat. They were raising lots of money. They were competent. Uh, they were hiring at a very rapid clip. And fast forward to today, uh, that's changed. Um, but that being said, there's still a lot of money flowing in, right? So venture capital is down from an all-time high last year, 30 to 40% down. But it's still going to be the second strongest year Uh, in history from a venture capital deployment. Plus, number one, is that venture capitalists are raising a lot of money. So there's a lot of dry powder. But in front of us, as you said, there's going to be some layoffs. There's going to be lower spending, um, all those things. But it actually makes sense and hopefully will end up being a much healthier market at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, you you sort of see it as a healthy cycle that's going to reimpose some discipline. Were you seeing signs at the peak of real Lack of discipline? Were were companies uh, spending like sailors?
1: (laughs) So uh, discipline is it's an interesting question, right? So when, uh, when you raise a lot of money and your investors want you to spend that money, right? That's the whole point of it. They want you to invest in the business. They want you to hire more people. They want you to spend on advertising, right? So I would actually argue that companies were doing what they were supposed to be doing from their investor perspective, right? That has changed, right? Now those investors are pulling back and saying, slow the spend, slow the hiring, uh, slow the advertising, all those things. And again, we shouldn't, that shouldn't be surprising uh, to us. Now, what's important to note is that companies are so much better off than they were during last cycles, right? So if you look at companies that are in that five to $15 million revenue range, right? If you go back and look at the last cycle, there is roughly 30 to 40 percent more cash on their balance sheet. So they can weather a lot more storms than they could historically. So there's a lot of of positive things, despite the headwinds that they have in front of them.
4: Yeah. And Greg, to your point earlier about dry powder, there's also a lot more of it than there were in previous cycles, uh, which could benefit you guys. I wonder if you could tell our audience a little bit about your credit risk, um, because you guys do operate at the heart of Silicon Valley. And as we see startups uh, ex- execute layoffs and cut their spending, you guys are actually relatively underexposed. As so just 2% of SVB's total loans are now to early stage companies, right?
1: Yeah. I'll start to kind of reinforce what I said a minute ago, which is companies are better positioned than they ever have been to weather a storm, number one. Number two, they've already been through recently, right? Two years ago when the pandemic started, they were all cut costs, um, save money, um, lower your burn. So they've already been through this recently. It's not as if it was a decade ago when that happened, right? So that's a positive side. Now for us, um, you're right. Most of our loans are to mid and later stage companies, um, venture capital firms, private equity firms. So those companies are are doing, doing well and financially incredibly strong that that early stage side, when they have less money, um, you know, it is higher risk, but to your point, it's a smaller percentage of our overall portfolio. Um, last quarter, we took a higher reserve just to kind of, as we looked out in the future, we wanted to be prepared for if more challenging times were ahead of us. So we're, we're feeling good about the situation the position we're in right now, and our balance sheet, capital ratios, liquidity has never been stronger. So we're looking at this as an opportunity to partner with our clients, to support them. Um, we've never seen the amount of um, requests for new debt. Uh, and so we're feeling good about the growth um, in lending over the balance of the year for tech and life science companies.
3: Well, when you look at those requests for debt, how are you measuring health perhaps differently now than you might have in previous quarters? The health of these companies, um, you know, top line you know, growth aside, what are the main sort of vital signs you're looking at to determine who's doing better than others?
1: Yeah, well, obviously, it's the it's the revenue it's the revenue growth. It is the how sticky that revenue is. Right, we're we're a couple quarters into this correction recalibration, and so how much has changed? And if companies are still doing well, and many companies are still doing well, that's obviously a great sign. How much cash, how much liquidity they have, um, what support they have from those investors is another is another category, right? So all those things come into our analysis to, to determine which ones we should be leaning into and which ones we should be kind of I'll call it wait and see to see how they play out over the next you know few quarters. Um, again, we've been doing this for you know 30 plus years, and so we've been through many cycles, and I think we feel really good about our process and understanding of how to approach working with companies, especially through difficult times. So in some ways, it's a better market because last year we were competing with equity. Now that's more challenging. And so we're getting a lot more requests and we're getting a lot more attention, which is a good place to be.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, a huge implications for the kinds of things we cover here, Greg. Uh, we're very grateful. Uh, good to see you. Thanks so much.
1: Absolutely. Take care.
4: And Warner Brothers Discovery throwing down the gauntlet with its big bet on House of the Dragon. Will it pay off? We will discuss. Stay with us. We're back in a moment. Let's get a gut check on Netflix. It's in the red after CFRA downgraded the stock to sell and cut their price target to $238 per share. While the stock has surged some 40% off of its mid-July lows, the firm believes Netflix may underperform the S&P for the rest of the year and says that this is no longer a growth stock. Shares are down more than 60% since January, down 6% today, John.
3: Okay, And speaking of streaming, HBO's debut of House of the Dragon last night attracted enough viewers to crash the site for a few thousand unlucky subscribers either bad news for their infrastructure or good news for Warner Discovery's strategy to win the streaming wars. Julia Borston joins us now with more.
9: Well, John, the launch of House of the Dragon on HBO and HBO Max last night wasn't just the launch of a new series. This is a high-stakes attempt to ex- extend the streamer's most valuable franchise, Game of Thrones, with a prequel. This comes after last season disappointed and annoyed some of the series' most devoid- devoted fans. And at a reported 15 million to $20 million an episode, the new series comes at a time when HBO Max and other streamers are anxious to hold on to consumers who are expected to be cutting back on costs and potentially some of those subscription services. With Warner Brothers Discovery shares down about 43% year to date and CEO David Zaslav looking for billions more in cost savings, Benchmarks analyst says this franchise could be integral to the success of Zaslov's new streaming strategy and could buffer subscriber erosion. After the media giant added what it says was 1.7 million new streaming subscribers between the first and second quarter, this fall is no doubt a crucial season for it to hold on to those subscribers and add new ones. And it comes at a time when it's competing with Amazon's biggest content bet yet. In just a week and a half, Amazon Prime is launching the Rings of Power that set a couple thousand years before The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, with five seasons expected to cost over one. dollars It's been called the most expensive TV series ever made by far, and along with those Thursday night NFL rights, it's part of Amazon's strategy to use big brands to draw and retain its Amazon Prime subscribers. Now guys, I just wanna point out here that it says a lot about the state of the media industry, that the biggest content face-off of the year, it wasn't about blockbuster movies this summer, but it's rather this, about streaming and these big series franchises. And I also have to point out that each of those two series on Amazon and HBO Max, they're dropping shows once a week. We're seeing a move away from the Netflix binge model, guys.
2: Yeah, uh, the streamers have learned that lesson the hard way, uh, Julia. I do wonder if you're sensing any clues into Warner's strategy here that might be extrapolated to, say, comics and DC or something like that.
9: Well, look, they want to find the franchises that resonate with fans. I mean, we've talked a lot about Batgirl and how they decided not to release that movie. But they're going to be testing the content, especially the films, and make sure that they work uh, before they invest in releasing them. But for this one, they want to make sure that this series works because then that franchise could have even more legs for, for the streamer.
2: Yeah, we're going to talk about it a lot more as we get into fall. Pretty fascinating, Julia. Thank you, uh, Julia Borston. Amazon is one of the multiple names that Goldman likes. Post results along with Uber, Meta, and Alphabet. You can read their full call today on CNBC.com slash pro. Don't go away. A dad took photos of his naked toddler for the doctor. Google flagged him as a criminal. That was the lead of a New York Times story over the weekend that has privacy experts and parents concerned. A man in San Francisco took photos of his son for his doctor with his Android phone. Days later, Google suspended his account because of harmful content it had detected and would not reinstate his account. Months later, he got a letter that the police had conducted an investigation of the photographs without his knowledge after Google shared them with authorities. In a statement to the Times, Google said child sexual abuse material is abhorrent and we're committed to preventing the Spread of it on our platforms. A remarkable piece uh, this morning that uh, the Times puts on page one D.
4: Yeah, John and I were talking about this before the show. Um, it's that trade-off between convenience and giving up your data, and it's a good reminder that you need to check your default settings and figure out what is being uploaded to the cloud, what isn't. It also raises a lot of questions about the health space, John. As we move online, you people use more telemedicine. Um, how secure? are these passages to get pictures to the doctor so you don't necessarily have to go in if you are busy.
3: Yeah, I guess it's, it's a fascinating story. People should read it and people should check their, their data practices, because my perhaps unpopular opinion here is this is the way it was supposed to happen. The problem here wasn't that Google flagged this stuff, it was that some of us get used to automatically backing up our private personal yeah. information in a public cloud just by default, right? And, and so it, it wasn't the fact that these photos were sent that was the issue, it was the fact that they were backed up into Google's cloud, which triggered uh, you know, algorithms that are searching for potentially troubling material, which triggered a police investigation. The mm-hmm. police said, actually, this isn't a criminal issue, but uh, th- this guy still found himself locked out of his accounts. Uh, Be careful, I think, is the message about assuming whether it's a listening device in your home that's fun because Alexa tells jokes or whatever. (laughs) Be be careful about sharing data with big companies, right? Because they'll do whatever they'll do with it. Yeah. Well, Evercore liking Dell this morning, the firm adding the name to its tactical outperform list ahead of results Thursday afternoon, saying Dell could beat estimates and big. And after this break, more on what to expect from two other names, Zoom and Palo Alto Networks, ahead of results tonight. Don't go away.
4: Well, it's going to be a big afternoon for investors looking for a read on software demand. Zoom, Palo Alto, they're getting set to report results in just a few hours. Frank Holland is here to tell us what to keep an eye on. Frank.
10: Hey there, Deidre. Palo Alto shares, they've had a bit of a choppy month since a big upgrade from Wolf Research back on August 1st, raising the price target to $700 a share. That was a 40% upside at the time, but the street still has a generally favorable outlook for this stock. Every analyst on the street has a buyer overweight rating. Revenues are forecast increase 27%, EPS 42%. Two big metrics to watch. The first, next generation security ARR. This is the growth or decline in money from existing customers for those new products. Estimates have it growing 50% year over year. The second, of course, Ford guidance. This is the end of the fiscal year for Palo Alto Networks. All right, turning our attention to Zoom, shares have had a difficult Q3, falling about 8% compared to the WCLD cloud computing ETFs, just about 8% rise during the quarter. And of course, there remain a lot of questions about Zoom's future. Data shows visits to the zoom.us site continue to fall in 2022, as a return to office and business travel really weigh on this pandemic favorite. The month over month declines, they've moderated a bit, but they still remain a big issue as the company also battles competition from Microsoft Teams and other platforms. Back over to you.
2: All right, Frank, thanks for that. Uh, Frank Holland on a busy week ahead on some of the software names. Still ahead, the return to work battle heating up at Apple. Why employees are pushing back in a moment.
3: One more thing before we go, a small group of Apple employees pushing back against the company's return to office plan. As a reminder, Tim Cook told employees they must return to the office three days a week, starting Labor Day to preserve quote, in-person collaboration that is essential to our culture. But these employees say they've proven they can perform exceptional work with the flexible schedule they've had for the last two years, demanding they be allowed to work with their immediate manager to design the best work environment going forward. They got a petition online. Just 208 people have signed it. And Carl, Apple's a big company. That's not a big percentage of the office-going Apple
4: population. Less than I would have thought, actually.
2: That's a a small sample, John. Interesting. We'll watch that. Uh, By the way, uh, don't miss Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong. As we said, a CNBC exclusive you do not want to miss here tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern time. In the meantime, Dow continues to be under some pressure, down 450.
3: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life
1: is a highway.